there's a whole body of research that demonstrates the true power of a plant of a diet that contains mostly plants or all plants in preserving your long-term health and dropping your chronic disease risk. Hi, I'm Zoe. Hi, I'm Erica. Hey, Erica. This is our podcast. Well, what do we do on the podcast? Uh, we talk to wellness experts. Well, what do we talk about? Mm, wellness stuff. And why are we doing this? Because we want to have an inclusive conversation about things that you can actually use and apply to your life. Right. We don't think that wellness should feel preachy. We think it should feel like everybody can participate. That's right. So if you like what you hear, tell a friend. Give us five stars. They're do all free. All of the above. All of the above. And think of us as your navigators on the bumpy highway to well. Good brunch to you. Good brunch to you, Erica. How are you? I'm good. How are you? No, I got a bum SI joint. <laughs> if, if I'm being honest. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what does SI joint even stand for? It's like the sacrum. It's, called, it's like sac- sacral oh, something. Oh, your back. Something. I thought yeah. you were talking about your ankle. No, my because my your ankle is connected to your backbone. <laughs> I did have a sprained ankle, and then I played tennis on it for three hours, and then that led to a really aggravated SI joint. Why you got to be a hero? You know, I'm just trying to milk this life for all it's worth, Erica. <laughs> I re- I learned that from whatever. Uh, I I don't know. I'm not trying to be a hero. I just it's the only it's the only thing that I do physically is like play tennis at the moment, and so. I get very, I get very excited. I get very, I'm very enthusiastic. I'm not like a, a good, a great player, but well, I'm that a very, doesn't matter. I'm a very enthusiastic one. Same thing that we say about karaoke and musical sing-alongs. Doesn't matter how mm. good you are; it just mm. matters your enthusiasm. That's right. Mm. Are you, are you transitioning? I'm not. No, we digress too much already. We digress. I know. God, aren't you glad you asked about my your bum you... SI joint? Yeah. Oh. Yep. I have an ice pack on it now. Anyway. Um, Anyway, let's talk about Cyrus Kambata because he is more interesting than your SI joint. Yeah, Maybe. okay, I'll give him that. So Cyrus is in Costa Rica. Yeah. Living the dream. Moved there from San Francisco, I believe. Yeah, it was kind of a fun chat to be able to see him like hearing parrots out the window and seeing him in his beautiful home with like, you know, palm trees and things in the background. Yeah, pastel walls. Very weird. He is the founder of Mastering Diabetes, which obviously by name alone, we can surmise he arrived there after a very long and traumatic battle with diabetes that kind of snuck up on him. And I think what he's doing is really interesting. He's basically taking a completely new approach to living with it, managing it, that is a little bit antithetical to everything that I think what we know, which is not really a lot, which is kind of the point of why we wanted to talk to him. Yeah, he's got a really cool approach. He 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 discovered through someone you'll learn all about, but it's all about, not all about diet, but a big part of what he learned and, and how he now manages his diabetes. I mean, he still takes insulin, but it's dramatically different than what the average person does who's, who, who lives with diabetes. So it's kind of, I mean... The dude eats a lot of fruit, put it that way. Right. Spoiler alert. He eats fruit Spoiler, and he, he likes it. And, it. and it agrees with him yeah. because of how he did it and how he approached it, whatever. Anyway, so for anyone who has diabetes, any type of diabetes, and there are so many, that we, so many more than I realized yeah. that we learned about. Um, this is a really great episode. He is teaching a course, actually. He's got a curriculum 
online at masteringdiabetes.com and it is thorough. Yeah. And I think he does actually retreats too in Costa Rica mm-hmm. where you could go down there and in person learn and be a little bit more hands-on. But he's, um, I don't know, he's a super smart dude. He's done a lot of studying up and um, has got some pretty impressive uh, letters after his name. So I think you should all have a listen. Have a have, listen. Have and a learn. share it with somebody that you know that might be struggling with diabetes because it's unfortunately a lot more common than we would like to think. And I think this is really good info. All right. Enjoy. Welcome. Hello, Cyrus Kambata. How you doing? How are you guys doing? Good, good. Uh, thank you for joining us. My first question for you is, what did you just inject yourself with? Okay, so I just injected myself <laughs> with fast-acting insulin. I'm actually glad you saw that. It's, it's actually interesting. So with me, I carry this, what I refer to as my man purse. Mm-hmm. Kit that basically has inside of it all of the things that I need in order to you know, control my blood glucose properly. So there's a blood glucose meter, which is this little thing. Mm-hmm. And then there are test strips, which you put into the blood glucose meter. And then there's a little finger pricker, which you prick yourself with. And then you stick it on the test strip and it gives you a reading. And then if I have to inject insulin, there's a little tiny vial of insulin right in here. And then I have a syringe where I can pull up the right amount of insulin and then inject it into myself. And so the reason I have this is because I've been living with type 1 diabetes now for 18 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know when I was first diagnosed, it was all brand new to me. I had no idea what this whole dance, this whole symphony was about. But over the course of time, you sort of have to learn, you know, how to control your blood glucose with precision, you know, using your diet, using your lifestyle, and then also using insulin. So it's just sort of like a, a kit that allows me to make changes if need be or get feedback so I can understand exactly what I'm supposed to do. So you just did it just now because you had monitored your levels and it was, or, 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 and you were deficient or was it more just like a, a normal maintenance poke? Good question. Just before we started talking, uh, I had two big plantains. Oh. And so I had given my, normally what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to give yourself, uh, you're supposed to test your blood glucose, then inject insulin based off of what you anticipate eating. So, you know, I, I checked my blood glucose and it was in range. I said to myself, okay, great. You know, I'm going to be eating these two big plantains. I also just exercised, which means that, you know, I have to take that into consideration because that's going to decrease the amount of insulin I need. So I do a quick mental calculation and figure out, okay, well, you know, I think I'm going to need probably about two units of insulin for these, for these two plantains. So I gave myself two units of insulin about half an hour ago. And then as I was thinking about it, I said, you know what? I think I actually need one more unit of insulin because I think I might have, you know, underestimated how many, how much carbohydrate value is inside of those plantains. So I gave myself another unit just to make sure that my blood glucose doesn't go high over the course of the next couple of hours. So that's a lot of that's a lot of mental every that's a lot of brain space. And you had to do that. Okay, so how old were you? Um, 18 years ago, you said? That's right, 18 years ago. So I was uh I'm currently 39. I was 21 when I was diagnosed with uh, type 1 diabetes. And it kind of flipped my whole world upside down, no question. Yeah. yeah. I probably would not have been that thoughtful at 21. I yes. don't know that it would have been that thoughtful or careful. I don't know. I guess you have to do what you have to do. But, um, but what, what happened? Like, what, was, what precipitated that discovery and how did it actually happen? Because I think it's always point when you're 21, we literally just don't 
we don't even know that we're supposed to listen to our bodies, let alone do we know how. So agreed. And catastrophic or agreed. So I all I was a senior in college and I was just trying to graduate and move on with my life. And this is literally uh, November of my senior year. I'm studying for finals. And picture the scene. I'm sitting at my desk and I'm trying to, you know, prepare for an engineering exam. I don't even remember what it was. And I, you know, I was, as I was scribbling things down, I was like, man, I'm pretty thirsty. I want to grab a drink of water, put it down, continue writing. And then I was like, man, I'm still pretty thirsty. Drank another glass of water, put it down, kept on writing. And over the course of three hours, four hours, five hours on one particular day, I was like, wow, I'm getting thirstier. I'm drinking more water than I've ever had. And yet I'm getting thirstier. Something doesn't seem right. So then that continued the next day, continued the next day. I was drinking between a gallon and a, two gallons of water per day. And I was uh, flushing fluids very fast. So I would drink a whole bunch of water. Then I have to go urinate every half an hour on the clock. And so I picked up the phone to call my sister, who's a doctor of osteopathy. And I said, Shinaz, what the heck is happening to me right now? Why am I experiencing these symptoms? And she started crying immediately. She was like, Cyrus, drop everything you're doing. Go straight to the health center. You are explaining that you have type 1 diabetes. I've heard the word diabetes referred to. I don't know anything about it. So she says, blah, 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 type 1 diabetes. And my response to her was, I don't have diabetes. Don't be ridiculous. Because the only thing I thought of at that time was that diabetes had something to do with old people and cake. That's That's all I knew. So I was like, I'm not old. I don't eat cake. That's ridiculous. So she's like, I don't care. I don't have time. Just go to the health center. So I go to the health center check myself in. They check my blood glucose. I'm over 600. Now, for context, your guys' blood glucose, you're not diabetic. Uh, your blood glucose hovers between about 70 and 130 all day long every day. Mm-hmm. And it's because your liver and pancreas are talking to each other at all times. Mm-hmm. And so that's what's considered a sort of physiologically normal blood glucose variation on a daily basis. You eat a meal, your blood glucose goes a little bit you know, higher towards 110, 120, 130. Then over the course of a couple hours, it comes right back down. You guys experience that all day long. So my glucose was supposed to be in that range. It wasn't. It was six times higher. And I got scared. So they took me to the hospital. They gave me an IV of saline in one arm to get me hydrated. They gave me an IV, an IV of insulin in the other arm to try and bring my blood glucose down. Now, while I was there for 24 hours, they pieced together this sort of complex health history that I hadn't fully put together myself over the course of the last six to 12 months. And they explained to me that I had not one, not two, but three autoimmune conditions. And I was like, what? How do I have three autoimmune conditions? And they said, well, the first one is Hashimoto's hypothyroidism. Mm. So I got diagnosed with that six months prior to my diagnosis with type 1 diabetes. Then a couple of months later, I got diagnosed with alopecia universalis, which is basically total hair loss. So as you, you know, you guys can see right here, I got no hair, no eyelashes, no eyebrows, nothing. A good friend of mine has all yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that's number one. That's number two. Then I get diagnosed with type one diabetes and that's the third one. And I was, I got real scared real quick. The doctors looked at me and they said, you have what's called a polyglandular autoimmune syndrome, but here's the kicker. We've never seen anybody with this combination of autoimmune diseases before. Mm. I was like, oh God, that's not... Lucky you. <laughs> I know. So they did whatever they could to, to console me and educate me and discharge me from the hospital within 24 hours. I left the hospital with two different types of insulin, a blood glucose meter, test strips, syringes, mm. a carbohydrate counting book, 
a bracelet that said, you have, I have type one diabetes. If I'm passed out on the, on the sidewalk, please call 911. And, and a lot of fear. And I was like, Oh my God, what, what is going on? This is weird. So over the course of the first year living with type one diabetes, I followed the advice of the doctors. I said, listen, we, we can tell you how to eat for type one diabetes. And what you got to do is eat a low carbohydrate diet because carbohydrates are bad for you. Carbohydrates will make your blood glucose go high. It's going to increase your need for insulin. Therefore, keep your carbohydrate count low and eat more fat and protein rich foods like peanut butter and milk and cheese and eggs and turkey burgers and fish and meat. And I was like, okay, fine. I mean, I'm a 21 year old guy. I'm an athlete. I like eating those foods anyway. So let's do it. So I, I did that to the best of my ability. And within the first year, my blood glucose was a disaster. Absolute disaster. It's all over the place. High, low, high, low, high, low. And when your blood glucose goes high and low multiple times a day, it just like sucks mental and emotional energy out of you. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to deal with. So I did that roller coaster for about a year. And then while at the end of that year, I decided that, you know, there's got to be a different way. There's got to be a better way to control my blood glucose better to not continue to increase my insulin requirements because that was happening. And then also to have more energy because when I was first diagnosed, I was low energy. And then over the course of the next year, I lost even more energy. I mean, it's to the point where like, I could barely, I could go out and play a game of soccer and then I would play, you know, I would take me like 72 hours to recover from that game of soccer. So I ventured out and I started looking for more information. And out of nowhere... I got introduced to some people who told me, I said, Hey, have you ever thought about becoming a vegetarian or a vegan? I was like, no. They were like, it might be something that you would benefit from. Why don't you go learn a little bit about it? So they put me in contact with a guy named Dr. Doug Graham, who turns out that he became an author. He wrote a book called the 80-10-10 book, where he basically, he's a, he's a fruitarian. He basically teaches people how to eat a fruitarian diet, which is predominantly fruit with small amounts of fruits or small amounts of vegetables. And uh, I just, he was literally the first guy that was confident in talking to somebody with type 1 diabetes. So I said, why not? I got nothing to lose. So under his supervision, under his guidance, I went to a retreat. And while I was there for one week, he had me eating the largest collection of fruits I've ever eaten in my life. I mean, I was eating plates of bananas and mangoes and papayas and figs, peaches, nectarines. Which none of which you had been eating over the course of that last year, trying to keep your carbs low, right? I mean, was that a terrifying experience for you to think about all the, you know, quote, the sugar you were consuming? Yeah, you hit it on the head because the doctors had told me to try and minimize my, you know, quote unquote sugar intake, my carbohydrate intake. So yeah, I was was having a very small amount of those in that first year. And so then, yeah, the prospect of eating these giant plates full of a bunch of fruits and vegetables, I was like, eh. This is going to increase my insulin requirements, Doug, because that's what the doctors told me. And he goes, oh yeah, how's that working out for you? And I was like... Okay. Can I just ask you, so what actually happens? What is the worst case scenario if your blood sugar goes unchecked and you don't take your insulin and you pass out? And that, like, what happens if you never bring it down? You die. How, what happens like, in the body wow. that like, what fails ultimately? Okay, this is this is a great question. Um, insulin is a think of insulin as like a uh, it's a required biological hormone that's that's compatible with life. In other words, when you become insulin deficient, it is incompatible with life. So if if I were to magically stop your guys's ability to produce insulin today, uh, and you guys were to not inject any insulin to you know recover that, 
Um, chances are within one, maybe two, maximum three months, both of you guys would be dead. Not trying to paint a grim story, but that's how important insulin really is in your body. So because our heart stops, because our, like what actually? Okay. So your blood glucose starts to climb. Your blood glucose climbs, you know, it gets very high, very high, very high. When your blood glucose is high, it aggravates tissues all throughout your body. It just, it just, tissues get inflamed. It aggravates your eyes. It aggravates the nerves and your fingers. It, it aggravates your brain. It aggravates your liver, your, your, your muscles, your kidney, you name it. So those tissues end up becoming inflamed and then they become dysfunctional and then they start to fail. So like your kidneys could begin to fail, right? The, uh, you could become severely dehydrated as a result of having high blood glucose. So as the concentration of glucose builds up in your blood, then you become really thirsty to try and get more water to bring that concentration down. Your heart can also experience some significant damage. I don't know. I can't point to one particular organ and say, oh, it's because you're, you know, you're right. Heart. But it's general organ failure is like what yeah, this no, case no. scenario looks like. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. No Let's go back to doctor okay, and back to the fruit plate, back, back to fruit. Okay, so so I'm just thinking about like again, you're a 22 year old guy, you're an athlete, right? And so you're definitely you're already aware of how your body's performing to have to go through this massive restriction in what you're consuming. Like eating that much fruit after having restricted for so long must have been like so delicious, but also just scary. You're like, what am I on a suicide mission? Yeah, I know. And it's just like important, I guess, for I want to like fully paint the picture of like the severity of the situation because I think oftentimes people associate diabetes with if gone unchecked, it's sort of like, at least in my experience, like you could lose a digit, you could lose a finger or, you know, it's like amputation or you go blind. So to just like really understand yeah, how sure. severe, um, but anyway, for, for sure. You guys, you guys hit on the, on the head. So I was excited because I enjoy eating fruit. I didn't realize how much I actually enjoyed it. Who does it? I mean, no, it's right. fine. But I was also nervous because the, the traditional diabetes world tells you, you know, fruit equals sugar, sugar makes your insulin, uh, increases your insulin requirements. Therefore, you're going to require more insulin. So I did some quick, quick mental math and I said, okay, man with type 1 diabetes eats approximately 100 grams of carbohydrate energy per day, uses 40 units of insulin on, a, on an average day. That's what I was doing. Same guy goes from 100 grams to 600 grams of carbohydrate per day by eating a ton of fruit, then his insulin is going to go up. It might not sixfold, it might not sixtuple, it might not even fivetuple, it might just double, right? And if it did double, then I'd be injecting 80 units of insulin per day. So I was like, well, I'm probably going to be injecting in the high double digits, no question. But Doug claims this is going to help me out, right? Here's what happened. I went from 100 grams to like 400 grams in the first day and then 400 to 600. And my blood glucose started falling so rapidly that I had to start backing off on the amount of insulin I was giving myself every single meal. And within 24 hours, my blood glucose had fallen below that threshold of 70. Other, it's, other, it's called hypoglycemia, where you get sort of like, like slurred speech and your vision starts to get funky and you get like shaky hands and very hungry. That happened to me six times within the first 24 hours. And I was like, this is unbelievable. I'm, the math isn't working out. And he's like, trust the process, Cyrus, trust it. So over the course of 24, I'm sorry, the course of seven days, my insulin use got cut by 40%. 
I went from injecting mid 40s of units per day all the way down to mid 20s per day within seven days. So I was basically eating six times as much carbohydrate, 40% less insulin. And I was like, this is fascinating. Mm. In addition to having better blood glucose control, in addition to having less insulin or a, a lower insulin requirement, I was way more hydrated. I was going to the bathroom. Uh, sorry, my, my bowel movements were much, much simpler, much easier. My energy levels had gone up noticeably within the first seven days. My muscles were just less tight, more elastic. And I just, I could exercise for longer periods of time and require less recovery. And I started to recognize that very quickly. Uh, and then dinner would roll around and I would have you know, some fruits, but mainly vegetables. I'd have uh, peppers, onions, uh, tomatoes, zucchini. Uh, everything was 100% raw. So that's like another component to add to it. And uh, there was zero supplementation. I wasn't taking any vitamins, minerals. Okay, so you're on a raw food diet. But I was on a raw food vegetarian diet, right? You were on a raw food diet, but were you restricting any raw foods? Like, did you have nuts or seeds? Did you have? Was it just plant? Or was it just fruit and vegetables? It was literally just fruits and vegetables to begin with, because uh, we were trying to simplify. We we're trying to eliminate yeah. variables, yeah. and also this philosophy is grounded in um, this sort of three words: low fat, plant based, whole food nutrition. It's a mouthful. Uh, you may not know this, but the total amount of fat that's in your diet is actually what's determining your insulin use. It's not the total amount of carbohydrate. And I was like, what? what? How come everyone thinks it's carbohydrate? Right. He, goes, he goes, that's why you're here. I'm going to educate you about that. So over the course of a week, he sort of educated me about the, the connection between the total fat content of your diet and your insulin requirements. Did this so, doctor have diabetes as well? No, he did not have diabetes. He just had plenty of experience in working with people who did have diabetes. And he's just a very, very smart man, extremely smart man. So he was able to kind of give me a lot of insight here. So after having experienced this for a week, I go back to my regular life. I continue eating this way. I continue feeling phenomenal. I go purchase a bike. I start riding this bike. I, I put in something like 6,000 miles in the first six months because I was just like, I literally would wake up in the morning and I felt like this overslept puppy. And I was just like, oh my God, I got I to gotta get all this energy out of me. And so I would just go exercise. Then I decided that, that things were going so well and I was thoroughly enjoying this new lifestyle that I put myself back to graduate school because I knew at that time that I was an end of one experiment and that what was happening inside of my body was interesting for sure. But what I was trying to ask at that time was, is, is what's happening inside of me applicable to other people? And if so, is it only for people with type one? Is it people for type two? Is it just general? Like, who does this type of nutrition? apply to. So in order to answer that question, I enrolled in a PhD program at UC Berkeley. And I was there for five years to, to really delve into the science so I could understand not only what was happening inside of me, but, but whether this, this idea of eating a plant-based diet was something that definitely did apply to other people and whether it would also help them improve their health. We've known as a scientific community for about 100 years at this point, starting in the 1920s, the true power of a plant-based diet and especially the true power of a low-fat, plant-based, whole food diet. So there have been experiments all the way back in the 1920s with this guy named J. Shirley Sweeney, and then another scientist named Israel Rabinowich, and then a whole collection of researchers beyond in the 1950s, 1970s, 1990s, you name it. And many of them had run very similar experiments where they were uh, manipulating 
the people's diets to be more plant focused, to be more fiber rich, to be higher carbohydrate. And every single time they did that, they saw that their insulin requirements dropped, their blood glucose values dropped, and their sort of diabetes status dropped to the point where a lot of these people were declared insulin free on less oral medications, more energy, lost a lot of weight, felt a thousand times better. So effectively, what I had uncovered while I was there was that the scientific community has already studied what was happening inside of me, has already studied it, has already documented it, has already written many randomized control trials about this. And for some reason, that information just is sort of like not really paid attention to. And what the general public does is the opposite. Do you think a big part of that is the the reason that it's been sort of under wraps or or just not as widely accepted and 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 discussed is because like a lot of other areas of, in science and medicine, there's not as much money to be made in selling, you know, pushing fruits and vegetables in their pure form because why why do that when you can make like fat bomb keto snacks and sell them? For 10x or whatever it is, I mean, is it is that a piece of it? Is that it's just there's there's not money to be made in this type of diet? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of things. I think there's not very much money to be made. You're right. Like, you know, telling people to eat fruits and vegetables has never really been that sexy, and like it's becoming a little bit cooler now. I would say, but it's still you just like you're saying. It's like it, these fat bomb keto snacks and collagen protein and uh, you know coconut oil, MCT oil. Like this stuff is somehow it just becomes like the marketing around it is more exciting. And so people end up doing that and they can make a lot of money off it. But then I also do think that there's, there's a bigger force at play and that the sort of like the pharmaceutical industry is also not necessarily that excited about perpetuating this information. Right, that's the other piece of it. Right, um, and kind of keeps this at, at, at bay so that people don't actually become healthier and they become you know, customers of the pharmaceutical industry for life. Yes, that's the case behind so many... So many things. Could you just take a minute to talk about, because this has been driving me crazy for, I don't know, about 25 years now. But could you just think like, because I don't want to turn this into like a raw food episode because yes. we're here to talk about diabetes. But it's very, and as a former raw foodist myself, who has spent time at like Ann Wigmore Institute, like has witnessed plenty of people being healed by, you know, fruits and vegetables. Also there, you also don't eat fruits or you also don't eat nuts and seeds. I mean, the last day they mm-hmm. give you like a little bit um mm-hmm. but it's truly raw fruits and plants and that's it so steer clear of all that stuff too because it is very you know it's, it's extreme but Sorry. i guess that like to me when people now have sort of like labeled that as like plant-based diet now in 2020 right so we kind of refer to it's kind of being lumped into like plant-based but to me, they're all very different things, right? So there's a reason that this doctor was specifically focusing on the raw fruits. Like, why couldn't you have it cooked? Because then there's this whole other school of thought, and I don't want to get into like Ayurveda, but like, right? They all have they all have value, and I think keto has value. I mean, keto has proven, and I'm like the lab never do it, but but there is science out there that has shown that people have healed from whatever. X, Y, and Z ailments. Specifically diabetes though, because keto and sugar. Right. Yeah. So I guess I'm just wondering more specifically what the reasoning was uh, by that doctor. Why the argument for the raw versus cooked mm-hmm. just with the fruits and vegetables? Because okay. if you say plant-based, yeah, you could say cooked or raw. But this is specifically raw. For sure. Yeah. So you're right. Under the sort of like plant-based umbrella, there's a whole bunch of different permutations. There's raw, then there's, uh, there's even like a 
a, a low carbohydrate ketogenic plant-based diet. Then there's cooked food, and then there's cooked food, medium fat, and low fat cooked food. You name it. At the time that I first learned this, Dr. Graham was explaining to me how to eat a raw food diet because he comes from a lineage of, of people in the world called natural hygiene. And the natural hygiene philosophy is to eat as food as close to the earth as possible with the least amount of treatment from heat or any other cooking method to sort of like uh, alter it from its natural chemical state. The thought process is that you know fruits and vegetables in their whole uncooked state are the most nutritious they will ever be. And anytime you treat them with heat, they're going to actually increase, so they're going to decrease their nutrient value. Okay, And what we find, ironically, for people living with diabetes is that you don't have to eat a raw food diet. It's way too constraining for most people. Mm-hmm. So what we do is we educate people how to transition to a diet that at the base level is mostly plants or all plants if you want to go there. And within that, whether you're eating mostly plants or all plants, if you want to cook your food, cook your food. If you don't want to cook your food, don't cook your food. But so all of this really only makes sense if you go back to the piece that you were talking about having to do with fat, right? Because otherwise, I mean, somebody who's who's living with diabetes that is listening only with half an ear and says, oh, this guy is saying I can now you know, eat all the raw fruits and vegetables that I can find because it's actually okay for my blood glucose. Mm-hmm. Is the is the point that you have to then balance it out with having significant reduction in fat? And okay, so how how does that work? And I guess can these two concepts live like side by side? Can somebody say, well, I'm happier eating like a heavier in fat and low carb diet, but somebody who prefers to eat like fresh fruits and vegetables has to sacrifice the fat? Like are both are they mm-hmm. are they kind of equally productive and 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 beneficial or is yeah, is there something? Yeah. I need yeah. to understand how the how the fat works. For sure, for sure. Okay, the first thing that I would recommend is that people eat as close to a plant based diet as possible. And the reason I say that is not because it's an end of one experiment and Cyrus went through it himself. Yes, that's important, but also because there's plenty of evidence based research that shows that people who eat a mostly plant based diet get phenomenal short term but also long term benefits. Not only for diabetes, but for heart disease, for cancer, for fatty liver disease, for chronic kidney disease, for Alzheimer's. You name it. Now. Within that plant-based umbrella, like you said, there's sort of like the higher fat diets, there's a, a higher fat keto diet, or you can eat a low fat diet. And the question is, does it, does it, which one of those is going to get you better results or are they equal to each other just because they both are plant-based? Now, when it comes to understanding the difference between the two of them, um, it's very important for people to understand that we've been told for many, many, many decades now that the reason your blood glucose goes up when you eat carbohydrates is because carbohydrates turn into sugar and sugar causes your blood sugar to go up. And as a result of that, your pancreas has to make more insulin. Your insulin requirements will go up and that's going to make you fat. And it's going to raise your cholesterol levels. You've heard this story before, right? Mm-hmm. Right. And so people have been sort of brainwashed into believing, okay, anything with carbohydrate is bad for me, whether it's from fruits or starchy vegetables like potatoes and, and um, excuse me, potatoes and squash. Mm-hmm. Or whether it's beans, peas, lentils, or whether it's whole grains like quinoa and black rice. Okay? The, the truth is that it's very important to understand that in the human body, in a mammalian system, carbohydrate metabolism, I'll call it glucose metabolism and fatty acid metabolism are mutually exclusive biological processes. 
So what I mean by that is that when your diet is high in carbohydrate, then it is very challenging for you to also process fatty acids at the same time. So it's the reason why a low fat diet that's high in carbohydrate works is because there's a, there's a large quantity of carbohydrate and a small quantity of fat at the same time, because the two are, again, they're mutually exclusive. If you go the opposite direction, you go to a high fat environment with a low amount of uh, carbohydrate rich foods, you also get benefits from that. Mm -hmm. So the problem is when you're in the middle and when you're eating a, a diet that's like medium in carbohydrate and medium in fat at the same time, biological systems, the system, the body in which you live is not designed to metabolize fatty acids efficiently and metabolize carbohydrates efficiently. It never has been designed that way. And I think that's where a lot of the confusion starts. Mm -hmm. So how much then do you talk about, because um, I mean, we used to talk about the importance of you know, food combining and for yeah, that exact exactly. reason. And I think that that was like a big part of what, you know, was learned at like through raw food was, you know, mm -hmm. the Edward Morris, everything was about food com combining and like fats, mm -hmm. protein, starches, you know, keep them all sort of separate, like a very mono uh, approach. So right. what, what is the, what is your thought on that? Okay. So you, I, th I think you're referring to like eating mono meals or yeah. eating meals that are very simple with like one or two foods. It's basically like don't mix the, like it requires different digestive enzymes, right? To break down like protein, to break down mm -hmm. starch, to break down whatever. So mm -hmm. to ease digestion and have better assimilation, all the rest, like try and do basically what you're explaining. Yeah. I mean, I think there's definitely validity to understanding that like there's, there's a different sort of digestive cocktail that's required in order to process, as an example, sweet fruits that are bananas and dates and figs and persimmons. I'll put them in a the sweet fruit category. The digestive cocktail that's required for those fruits is different than your citrus fruits, which are things like uh, pineapples and oranges and tangerines and pomelos and grapefruits and, and kiwis. And the digestive cocktail is also different than what are called your subacid fruits, which are going to be peaches, pears, stone fruit, berries, papayas, mangoes, you name it, right? And then in addition to that, there's a different digestive cocktail for like nuts and seeds and, and, or melons as well. So yes, I think it can get very complex. And I think each individual has to sort of work and learn about how their digestive processes unfold. But to be perfectly honest, that level of like, minute detail into food combining, I think is, is important for people that are eating a predominantly raw diet. But if you're not eating a predominantly raw diet and you're cooking some of your food, then a lot of those rules just kind of like, they become a lot less relaxed. They're not, they're not as necessary. The reason why the, the, the diabetes world believes that carbohydrates are bad for you and carbohydrates are going to increase your insulin production is because it does if and only if you are already operating in a high fat environment. Mm -hmm. So if you're operating in a high-fat environment or a medium-fat environment, and then you try and add carbohydrate energy to that environment, your insulin levels are going to go up. Right. It's going to trigger fat storage. It's going to lead to increasing cardiovascular disease risk. It's going to increase your risk for fatty liver disease. so crazy to me because it is so the opposite of what we're being told even today by very like forward-thinking, progressive, you know, it's like, I, I would say every leading, you know, not leading, but probably like popular on Instagram nutritionist it's like you know if you're gonna have a piece of whole wheat toast make sure to slather it with peanut butter to curb your 
blah, blah, blah. So it's always, you know, I feel like everyone is trying to communicate that point about balancing it, right? Like balance the banana with some nut butter, with some fat, but you don't, your blood sugar doesn't spike. I mean, that message is like, been right. Drilled. So I have two questions about this. So in that example that Zoe's talking about, I mean, is everything you're saying applicable to the community at to the general diet at large? Or is this specifically if you're talking about diabetes? Like, is that advice about put some fat onto your carbs in order to balance your blood sugar acceptable if you're not dealing with diabetes? Or is it really just like you should never be doing that? And yeah. my second question is. I would just like to know a bit more about like the actual macros that you're talking about. Like what is sure. the fat to the carb ratio when you're talking high fat, low carb and vice versa. But the first okay. question. Okay. So the, the answer to your first question is, is this applicable to everyone? And the answer is yes. You do not have to be living with any form of diabetes right now um, in order to, for this message to apply to you for sure. Now to let, let's take a step backwards here actually to understand a little bit more about carbohydrate and fat metabolism first, and then we can come back and start to answer some of these other questions, especially about the macronutrient ratios. Because it's the, the, the like, if you understand what's actually happening under the surface as far as the biochemistry is concerned, then it makes a lot more sense. And so a simple way to think about this is that when you eat a fat-rich food uh, in your diet, whether it's nuts and seeds and avocados or whether it's chicken or eggs, okay, the food uh, contains what's called triglyceride. Uh, and the triglyceride is basically, a, a, it's a molecule that has a glycerol backbone plus three fatty acids attached to it. So the name is triglyceride, three fatty acids plus one glycerol. So you eat triglyceride, the triglyceride travels down your digestive system, down your esophagus to get inside of your small intestine. Inside of your small intestine, you have enzymes that basically come and they start to like degrade and try and rip apart the glycerol from the three fatty acids. So it happens in your small intestine. And then those fatty acids get absorbed through the walls of your small intestine to get inside of these particles known as chylomicrons. These chylomicrons then get dropped into your lymph system, they get inside of your blood, and now they're in free circulation inside of your blood. The purpose of chylomicrons is to distribute fatty acids to tissues all throughout your body. If the fatty acids were to go and go only into your adipose tissue or your fat tissue, then diabetes would likely not exist as a condition. And the reason for that is because your fat tissue is a safe place to put fatty acids. It's a a tissue that's specifically designed to be able to uptake fatty acids when they're present in your blood and then to be able to hold on to them for a long period of time and then to be able to distribute them or get rid of them when the time is right. What the cell is responding to, what the cell is saying is, why is all this fatty acid energy coming in? I don't want any more. I am full. I have plenty of energy and I would like to be able to block more of these fatty acids from coming in. The problem is that the cell can't really do a good job of blocking those specific fatty acids from coming in because there isn't a very good mechanism to be able to turn off, to shut the door to them and tell them to stay in the blood. So these fatty acids, when they're present in the blood, they kind of just diffuse and get inside of tissues, even though the tissues aren't asking for them. So what the, what the cells in your liver and muscle do is they say, aha, I can't really block these fatty acids from coming in, but I can tell insulin to go away. And if I were to tell insulin to go away, what that means is that I can block, I can block glucose from coming into the tissue. And if I can block glucose from coming into the tissue, then I can at least limit the amount of energy that's coming into the cell. 
So they would like to be able to block fatty acids, but they can't. So they say, let's go block insulin to try and block glucose from coming in. And so as a result of that, when insulin does come around the next time, like let's say you decide that you're going to go eat a banana because you're like, I want to eat a banana. So you eat one. Then the banana has carbohydrate. The carbohydrate breaks down into glucose. Glucose is accompanied by insulin. Insulin knocks on the door of the liver and muscle says, hey, I got this glucose. Do you want to take it up? And the liver and muscle respond by saying, nope, sorry, close for business. I can't do it because I got all this fatty acid stuff I got to take care of first. Do you see the size of this lipid droplet? I got to deal with this thing first. So as a result of that, insulin is like, well, looks like I can't really do anything. And glucose is like, well, looks like I can't really do anything either. And they both get trapped inside of your blood. So this state is known as insulin resistance. Mm. When the liver and muscle are resistant to the effects of insulin. And so insulin is knocking, it's knocking, it's knocking. It's like, hey, come on, man, open the door, open the door, open the door. And glucose is like, come on, insulin, do something. I want to get inside. But the, the, the liver and muscle are like, mm-mm, got to get rid of this fatty acid stuff first if you want me to respond to insulin. So, because now I'm truly fascinated uh, about what you are eating now. <laughs> this is just like, uh, it's confusing. What does your typical morning, lunch, breakfast, lunch, and dinner look like? Neil? What does it look like? Okay, but before we get there, let me just let me just close the loop so that way I think listeners can really understand exactly what to do once you've gotten to this point. You're in the insulin resistant state. Insulin isn't isn't working as effectively as it used to. Glucose is getting trapped inside of your blood. Insulin is getting trapped in your blood. And now as a result of that, you're like, wow, I can't eat carbohydrates. Look, every time I eat anything that's carbohydrate rich, I just had one banana. For heaven's sakes, I had one banana and now my blood glucose is high. I guess it's the banana's fault. I guess potatoes are bad for me. I guess I shouldn't eat any rice. Because when I do, look, my blood glucose goes up and I can prove it to you because I'm measuring it with a blood glucose meter, right? So that's the, that's the reason, going back to one of your previous questions, is like, why is this the pervasive rhetoric? And the reason is because that's what happens when you're in a high-fat environment. Mm-hmm. Right. So in order to reverse this process and, and get rid of this thing called insulin resistance and make yourself insulin sensitive, we got to go back to the root cause. Instead of just saying, oh, I'll play the carbohydrate avoidance game and just never eat carbohydrate rich food. Instead of playing that game, go back to the root cause and say, well, what caused this insulin resistance blockade, this traffic jam in the first place? It was, it's not fat. It's an over accumulation of excess fat. It's the consumption of excess fat in your diet. So. To answer your question here, well, what do I eat? Well, in order to become insulin sensitive, what we recommend is that people drop their total fat intake to something like 10 to 15% of their total calories. And, and it's very simple to do that. It's actually not that hard. In order to do that, you want to eat, you want to minimize your intake of the fat-rich plants like nuts, seeds, avocados, olives, coconuts. And you want to eat lots of fruits. Lots of starchy vegetables like potatoes and yams and turnips and squash. And then lots of whole grains like oatmeal, buckwheat, rice, quinoa. Okay. And then in addition to that, also legumes like beans, lentils, and peas. So on a daily basis, what I eat is I eat a giant fruit bowl for breakfast. And a big fruit bowl that's got maybe like you know, one big plantain and maybe half of a Maridol, like one of those Mexican papayas. And then I'll eat that. I'll go and I'll exercise. I'll come back home. 
My wife is a doll. She makes me a smoothie bowl when I come back from exercise every day. So that's got multiple fruits in it. Maybe got like two plantains, uh, another mango, plus uh, some berries to put on top. Okay, so it's sort of like fruit-centric breakfast, fruit-centric lunch. And then by the time the afternoon rolls around, that's when I gravitate towards things like garbanzo beans. And maybe I'll have a little bit of potatoes. Maybe I'll have some quinoa in the evening hours. I'll make a giant salad for dinner. Maybe I'll have some steamed vegetables. And then I'll call it a day. But you're not putting, uh, you know, you're not putting coconut oil in your oatmeal. You're not putting avocados on your beans. You're not putting right. like so olives in your salad. This is the macros question, right? Like, what is that ratio of carbs to fat? Exactly. Okay. So the answer is no, I'm not, I'm not adding extra like fat rich food or oils to my food at all. No. And we definitely don't recommend doing that. The macronutrient distribution is 70, 15, 15. So 70% carbohydrate, 15 fat, 15 protein, or some people decide to go all the way upwards of 80, 10, 10, and that's totally fine. So somewhere in that ballpark is what we recommend. And there are some fascinating studies that have been done over the past five years that actually demonstrate that if you take individuals living with type 1 diabetes, who the reason they did it in people with type 1 is because people with type 1 are fascinating test subjects. We're like walking laboratories. Because we don't manufacture insulin, you can perform an experiment on somebody with type 1 and you can control exactly how much insulin they get so you can learn about how things affect their insulin usage. You can learn how exercise affects insulin. You can learn how diet affects insulin. You can learn how stress affects insulin. So we're sort of these walking laboratories. Hmm. So these studies have actually shown in people with type 1 diabetes that if you feed them a single high-fat meal, just one high-fat meal, that over the course of the next 12 hours, their their blood glucose levels go up and the amount of insulin that they have to inject in order to keep their blood glucose controlled can go up by as much as 65% after one meal. And when you say high fat, like what, what, do you, what constitutes a high fat meal in terms of like grams of fat? Grams of fat, 30 grams of fat. Is considered high fat meal. 30 grams of fat is considered high okay. fat, right? How many grams of fat are in a half an avocado? So uh, half an avocado has 12 grams. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so basically if you were to eat a full avocado at that meal, that would, consider, that would be considered a high fat meal. Right. And that could increase your insulin requirements by 65%. Now, that does happen in people with type 1 diabetes. It also happens inside of you guys as well. It's just that it's harder to measure inside of you guys because your pancreas is making insulin, but the same effect would, would occur, right. which is that your pancreas has to just work a little bit harder in order to keep your blood glucose controlled, right? So to go back to what we were saying here earlier about, well, well okay, fine. What if you did the exact opposite? And what if doing the low fat thing to keep your insulin requirements low, what if you did the high fat thing and just avoided eating carbohydrate rich food, right? Like, let's say you decided to eat uh, even a plant-based diet, like we recommend, that's got lots of nuts and seeds and avocados and coconuts and olive oil. What if you did that, right? And the answer is yes, you would get phenomenal blood glucose control. Your blood glucose would be flatlined. Your insulin would be very low. Um, but in addition to that, there's also a lot of cardiovascular improvements that come along for the ride as well. Um, your total cholesterol can drop, your LDL cholesterol can drop, your triglyceride values can drop. And so on a piece of paper, things are moving in the right direction. Your approach, so the 80-10-10, favoring carbs, is changing the biology. You hit it on the head. 
not it does again it doesn't have to be 80 10 10 it's just you know a higher carbohydrate right higher carbohydrate lower fat plant-based diet that fundamentally changes the biology of your liver and muscle to be more insulin sensitive to be more insulin responsive and as a result of that be living in an insulin sensitive state decreases your risk for chronic disease that's the kicker Ah, very interesting. Like, so insulin sensitivity is just a gateway to chronic disease risk. That's all I'm saying. That's so funny because I remember as a raw foodist, I that was like often a conversation is that so many raw foodists who, you know, kind of attempted it or didn't do well on it. Um, it was always like the biggest mistake I think raw foodies make is that they eat way too much fat. Yeah, way, way, way too much Mm -hmm. fat. And I think they see it as like, yeah, I mean, they're basically just like, I'm going to sit here and eat like nuts and, you know, avocados all day. But Definitely. I have to ask you, are you really eating a dry salad every day? Oh, no, 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 no. Like that. <laughs> okay. When you say dry salad, you basically are saying you're not putting salad dressing on top. You, she's right. saying oil. I'm saying uh, oil. Or, yeah. Oil. Okay. So the beauty here is that we can slice it in one of a couple of different ways. The salads that, that we make at home are very, I'll call it lubricated. <laughs> There's plenty yeah. of uh, like juice on it. And, and the, the juice comes from, number one, tomatoes. Mm-hmm. When you cut up a tomato and you don't de-seed it, then you actually get the juice of the tomato that's like coating all then the... Then you get all the lectins. God, I just, I don't know. I'm, I lose everything. <laughs> <laughs> I told you this is going to happen. Okay. <laughs> it's like all roads lead to lectins. Sorry, go on. All roads lead. Okay, so here's the number, so number two. In the salads that we make, I always put some kind of like a small amount of fruit in there. Whether it's mango, it's hydrated, it's liquid, it kind of, you know, lubricates the salad. Or you could put papaya in there. That does the same thing. Okay. You could put, you could cut up an orange in there and that'll do the same thing. Okay. Now, if you want to get even more sophisticated, you make a salad dressing that is a vinegar base as opposed to an oil base. Right. It's very simple. So rice wine vinegar, apple cider vinegar, balsamic vinegar, sherry vinegar, champagne vinegar. I don't care. Just take vinegar, your favorite kind, and go to Spice World. Open up your spice cupboard, paprika, black pepper. Uh, you put a little bit of salt in there if you want. It's totally fine. Put in curry powder then put it into a little you know, container, mix it up, make a salad dressing, pour that bad boy on top of your salad and tell me you don't love it. Okay. The idea that you have to have an oil in your salad in order to make the salad palatable or in order to make it fun is not a true statement. Oil can definitely be the basis for a salad dressing, but again, it's going to increase your total fat intake. It's going to cause blood glucose control problems. It's going to increase your level of insulin resistance. And uh, it, there's alternatives to it that are just as healthy. I'm sorry, that are healthier, in my opinion, and um, that taste phenomenal. So when you do eat fat, what are you eating? Nuts, seeds, uh, a little bit of coconut. There's also fat in plenty of... Okay, so this is actually a real fundamental point that my wife just brought up, and I, and I want to drive this one home. Bring her in here. I know. Get, I want to say hi. <laughs> Get in on this guy. Hi. Hi. Thank you for your insights. Oh, for sure. So she's brilliant. So, um. Um, so actually, this is a question that we get all the time. And it's a really, really important thing to understand. And it's a topic that I would love to even write more about, which is that fat is a macronutrient that is found in all whole foods. So the best way to learn how much fat you're getting on a daily basis, because you know, you don't have to add foods that we sort of See as fat-rich foods like nuts and seeds. When you log your food in a tool like a food logging tool like Chronometer or you know even uh, my Fitness Pal, 
you can get a breakdown of your macronutrients. And so all whole foods almost contain this perfect concentration of macronutrients, of carbohydrate, protein, and fat. Mm-hmm. It's like somewhere close to the 70, 15, 15, or 80, yeah. 10, 10. Right. So just naturally by eating lots of, uh, you know, like we said, fruits, non-starchy vegetables, starchy right. vegetables, whole grains, and legumes. Leafy green vegetables. Yeah. Beans, especially. Legumes are like almost like nature's perfect macronutrient ratio. <laughs> right. And, you know, sorry, go on, go on. Well, what I found was when I started logging my food, like I don't have diabetes. Um, I'm a coach with our program and I help our members learn this method. And as I started logging my food to sort of just see where things fall out, it's fascinating to see just how much fat you're actually getting without trying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. How much fat is in an egg? I eat a lot of eggs. (laughs) It's like seven grams. Time to go to the chronometer. chronometer. Yeah. So like that's where chronometer is such a cool tool. I have to say, we are such big fans of chronometer. You can get a free version. There's a free version you can download. And you can just log, you know, one egg versus, you know, a papaya versus like what size did plantain. And you cool. can see the macronutrients. Awesome. Well, man, you guys are kind of like walking billboards. You're so damn fresh based. I know. I know. Like in Costa Rica, there's parents chirping and I mean, you guys tell, tell us, um, give me a rundown of what do you guys eat on a daily basis? I'm very curious. I mean, I I've played around with different like ratios, not in in very hard um, you know tracking ways, but like I've definitely you know tried to pay more attention to I I did high carb and you know what quote unquote low fat was like in the nineties and the early aughts, and that's obviously not you know that's that's no way to actually be healthy knowing what we know now. But no processed foods or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like I'm comfortable and I feel like I have more energy when I'm on like a modified pink hat, a modified paleo, and I don't eat a lot of meat, but like a higher protein and fat versus lower. And I, I mean, I love sweet potatoes and I love fruit and I love that, but I find that I feel better and I feel more energy and I feel my system is working better when I don't have a ton mm-hmm. of carb. But that's, that's me. And I also haven't necessarily tracked it or paid as close attention to, you know, like the the actual like 70, 20, 10, 10 or 70, 15, 15. There's no way I've ever. Okay. So, so that's, um, I think you're bringing up a good point, which is that there's a lot of people who say, uh, you know, when I eat more fat rich foods or more protein rich foods, I just feel better. Right. And, and I'm not going to deny that by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I've also been in that situation previous, but one of the things I learned through, throughout the process is that, uh, I wasn't at the times where I did feel that way. I wasn't actually controlling. I wasn't, I wasn't measuring my macronutrient intake properly. Right. And mm-hmm. just like you said, like I would almost encourage you and maybe like uh, challenge you if you, if you're up for it to do like one or two weeks where you're actually eating at that 70, 15, 15 ratio and really controlling your fat and protein intake and see if it, if it changes the way you feel. Yeah. I mean, I I'd just feel like getting carb crashes, like eating a really carb-rich breakfast and then being starving like two hours later. When, like an you, hour later. when you eat beans, do you eat rice with your beans? Uh, not necessarily. No, she likes to eat rice with her beans. Is I it like a horrible eat. idea? <clears throat> is, it a, no, is it a no-no? Okay. No. Yeah, we uh, eat rice and like, it's in the green light category, especially brown rice. So white rice does tend to, you know, raise blood glucose much faster. Like whole brown rice is a whole grain. White rice, we don't consider to be a whole grain. 
So we would say like, you know, especially if you're looking at your glycemic control after you know, your glucose control after a meal like that, brown rice might be a better fit for that meal with, with beans. But we add beans to salads. We make like big food bowls with like beans and vegetables and some fruit like Cyrus was describing earlier. Right. So yeah. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. It's tricky. Uh, so much of it is also about what you're not eating, right? So yeah, you know, I think like for me, I'm not. I I'm a vegetarian. I don't eat. I'll eat fish sometimes, um, which is technically not a vegetarian. I realize, but and if I eat other animal protein, it usually comes in the form of eggs primarily, and then some cheese. cheese. But had, <laughs> yeah, but I had a whole, I had this whole like moment, like I've been vegetarian since, uh, I don't know, since I was 20, 19. And um, this, you know, all the acupuncturists, all the sort of Chinese medicine doctors are all about cooking your food. They're all about eating red meat. So I had all of these practitioners like urging me like, Zoe, you know, like you need to eat meat, like specifically red meat to build your blood and blah, blah, blah. I was like, oh my God, if one more like functional medicine doctor, acupuncturist, whatever, all these people that I truly respect tell me to eat meat. So I finally said, okay, I'm going to like, I'm going to eat steak and see how I feel. They're like, I promise you, you're going to like immediately have all this energy. Blah. I was like, okay. I tried it um, a couple of times over the course of like probably three times over the course of like, you know, whatever, two months. I did absolutely nothing. It basically just made me constipated. I think I got a zit every time I ate. So I'm not even exaggerating. It was such like a direct like correlation. And then mm-hmm. I just felt overly like seasoned and had like puffy eyes. So I don't know. I mean, this is like, this is such a confusing world when we're trying to navigate. And I, I want to just say like, oh, it all depends on the individual. Like some people do really well on like eating nothing but steak and vegetables. I guess it just depends what your issue is and what you're trying to achieve, right? Okay. So I would agree and I would disagree at the same time. Um, uh, exactly. Especially in the world. Problem. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So let me, let me try and find some commonality here. Uh, in, especially in the world of diabetes, you hear this over and over and over again. Now, well, everyone's different. Everyone's different. You got to find what works for you. Yeah. And even though from a, from a biological perspective, yes, that is a true statement. I am a physiologically different being than my wife, Kylie, than both of you guys. There's bioindividuality uh, to all of us that determine the color of your eyes, the length of your hair, how you digest food, how frequently you go to the bathroom, you name it. That being said, there's more commonality amongst us all than there is individuality. And so if we were to sort of draw a Venn diagram of like me versus you, what we would find is that there's a lot of crossover. In fact, like 80, 90, maybe even more percent of you and I are very similar from a, from a DNA and from a gene expression perspective. And there's small differences in um, our genetic makeup and our gene expression that actually confers a bunch of different traits to us, right? Now, the, the predominant uh, viewpoint right now in the world of nutrition amongst uh, researchers from many different philosophies and many different walks of life is that eating a diet that it contains mostly plants is the healthiest diet, not only for the short term, but also for the long term. Yeah. And what human beings are masters of doing is making decisions off of things that happen in the short term. Mm-hmm. 
we all make decisions, you know, especially in this instant gratification world. We're making decisions about what should I eat because of the way it makes me feel now? What should I eat because of what my blood glucose does in the next two hours? What should I eat because of, you know, how it affects my sleep tonight? But what human beings are not good at doing is looking into the future and saying, what's going to happen five years from now? What's going to happen 30 years from now? How is my Alzheimer's risk going to be affected by what's on my plate today? Right. And so what, what we encourage people to do is think about it both from the immediate perspective, but also from the long-term perspective and recognize that there's a whole body of research that demonstrates the true power of a plant, of a diet that contains mostly plants or all plants in preserving your long-term health and dropping your chronic disease risk. And that's, I think, something that that's like a message that I want to send to the population because it's really important to look into the future and not only make decisions based off of what's happening right here and right now. Amen. I mean, that is so true. And there's nothing more like instinctual, you know, than, than, you know, eating a a diet rich in plants. Right. I don't know. It's just, it's a very bizarre. I was just actually talking to Erica. Have you seen that movie, The Game Changers? Oh yeah. I love that movie. It's great, right? I watched it twice. I forced yeah. my husband and his friend to watch it and they fell uh-huh. asleep in like two minutes because they were they ate so much. <laughs> 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 um, anyway, but I thought he did a great job articulating that very simple message and, and, and debunked a lot of this stuff too. Awesome. Well, I feel like we could have just like a summit on like this for, you know, days, but um, <laughs> it's um, so great to talk to you guys because you're both, I mean, you're such a wealth of knowledge and you're, you're able to articulate this so eloquently and obviously you know, speaking from firsthand experience. And I think it's really, I mean, I think for people out there who maybe, maybe people out there who are listening who have diabetes have some level of access to this type of information. But I think that people out there who know someone with diabetes and have maybe someone in their family, it, this is really, really helpful and kind of exciting information because I feel like you're unlocking something that I think is just very little known um, information or feels like it's just not part of the commonly accepted conversation right now. And I think just offering up another tool and another avenue into, you know, being able to enjoy your life and, and live very, very nicely and very, you know, strongly while, while still mm-hmm. dealing with this is, it's, I don't know, it's nice. And I just want to add, I wanted to touch on it earlier, but we, you know, um, we're on to other things, but and people can obviously go to your website and there's your whole resource, uh, tons of resources. But the question around gestational diabetes. Oh, yeah. Is this all appropriate for gestating ladies? It absolutely is. Yes, it absolutely I say, is. Right. And I, I imagine mean, every OB is going to be like, you need to eat, you know, steak and blah, blah, blah. But yes. There's this pervasive, this, this mindset that a lot of, doctors have they say we hear this all the time they say they say a, a vegetarian or vegan diet or especially a low fat diet is is uh, is either protein deficient yes. or or low in fat and it's going to impair the growth of a fetus and when i hear that from doctors i used to think that that was a true statement and i did a bunch of reading and then i did a bunch of learning and i now when i hear that statement i i tell doctors i say hey thank you for your opinion Mm-hmm. Okay, that is truly an opinion. And the reason that it's an opinion is because in 2015, the World Health Organization, the FAO, and the American Heart Association, all three of them put out position papers that basically stated that a vegetarian and or vegan diet 
is healthy and adequate, nutritionally adequate for all stages of the life cycle, including pregnancy, breastfeeding, infancy, adolescence, for athletes, and for the elderly. It said there is not a single moment in time for a human in which a vegetarian or a vegan diet does not provide ample nutrients. Mm-hmm. And this idea that if you're pregnant, that somehow you're in a different class, that you cannot sustain yourself on a vegetarian or vegan diet is unfortunately not backed by evidence-based research. That's what I thought you were going to say. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> so we could, we could do a whole other podcast on that. Yeah, we really, we really need yeah. to. Um, wow, yeah, this is a fascinating topic. It really is. And this is, again, it's like kind of, I feel like it's a gift of just new information that we will be so happy to help, to help disseminate. So we will send people to masteringdiabetes.com. Yes. Oh, and there's the book. We're, yeah. So th- we, we, we wrote a book and, and this book is just called Mastering Diabetes. You can go to Amazon, Barnes and Noble, pick it up. The, the reason that, that the book is important is um, a couple of reasons. Number one, it took us more than two years to put this thing together. But when we were writing the book, we wanted to make sure that we weren't hand picking, cherry picking the evidence to mm-hmm. suit our bias. Because it, it happens a lot. And like I find myself guilty of that every so often. And I stop myself and I'm like, give the research an unbiased look. So that's what we've tried to do in this book. And really present evidence about what truly causes diabetes and how can you reverse it. This book has more than 800 scientific references in it. And it really goes into a lot of detail here about not only what the problem is, but what you can do to reverse this thing called insulin resistance and truly get rid of diabetes, have it disappear for those with prediabetes and type 2. If you're living with type 1 or 1.5, you can actually control it beautifully and, and again, minimize your risk for chronic disease into the future. And that's the point. Amen. Well said. Um, we will definitely do everything we can to help, to help uh, spread the word and, and get, get the information out. Thanks for listening to HTW. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and make sure and rate us on iTunes. You can even give us five whole stars if you think we deserve it. If you have ideas for guests or topics, you can call our 1-800 number. Yes, we have a 1-800 number at 800-674-1839 or holler at us on social at HTW Podcast. You can also head to our website at htwpodcast.com for more episode info and check out our Daily Blend blog to see what we're drinking.